Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today I'm speaking to a Berlin-based British-born writer. She's been published by the Times Literary Supplement and the White Review, amongst others, and she's part of the LGBTQ plus writing collection The Future is Back. Her debut collection of short stories is Parallel Hells. It's an anthology drawing on gothic horror and folklore exploring love, power and identity. Leon Craig, welcome to Monaco Reads. Thank you so much for having me, Georgina. I'm really excited to be here. I say drawing on gothic horror and folklore, exploring love, power and identity, but it's so much more than that. It's absolutely huge. Some of the themes and the people and the uh, supernatural beings that you bring together in this book. And we'll get back onto that in a moment. But I just want to talk about your sort of early development as a writer, because I know that you're the daughter of a, of a really esteemed writer, Amanda Craig. Yes. And I have to say, I think I had a really great childhood for writing because I was being kind of bombarded with mythology and also more contemporary writing. And it was just very normal in my household always to be reading several things at once and then arguing about them kind of constructively. So I really have to give credit to my mother for that one. And I mean, you must have then been able to sort of observe the writing process up close. Yes. I think one of my mother's maxims has really kind of come to be the core of my creative practice, which is sometimes we would be talking about writing and then she would just sort of cut through all of that and go like, well, if you're not actually doing the writing, then all of these fine words don't really go that far. Hmm. And, you know, often when I've been like, oh, you know, should I go to a party? You know, should I read this thing about practice? It's like, well, actually, no, I just kind of have to do it. That said, it did take me seven years to write this, so maybe I didn't absorb as much of that as I would like to imagine. Well, as long as you went to some good parties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you studied medieval literature. Why? Well, initially, it was a slightly mercenary decision, which was... You know, I went to university the very last year with the old fees and it sort of felt like we were all kind of trying really hard to stream through a kind of ever-narrowing gap. And I was like, OK, I've got to make this count. You know, I'm so lucky that I've kind of got in at the last moment where I'm not as worried as I'm as sort of subsequent years would be. And I was like, OK, well, what of this am I less likely to read for pleasure after leaving university? And I was like well, I'm probably not going to read, like, Anne Crane or Wissa, like, this is a devotional guide for, I think, 11th century women. And then, actually, I've discovered that I loved all of this probably the most and that the kind of emotional range was like nothing else I'd ever encountered. And that I think that is the genesis of this book. Mm. I mean, I know nothing about medieval literature and, and, and it's unfair to ask you to sum it up in a, in a paragraph or so, but... But if you were to if you were to start encouraging somebody to read that area, what would you say about it? I think I would say take some of the most kind of extreme and unacceptable emotions in modern life, like kind of ecstatic joy or like 
this sort of intractable grudge or kind of obsessive romantic longing. And those are the things I think that are most gratified in medieval literature. And if you really want those, I would say go for like one of the shorter sagas, like Crafinkel Saga, which is all about these men who have this obsessive vendetta against one another. You know, go for Mallory and Lancelot's longing for Guinevere, even though it kind of brings the kingdom down around their ears, or go for some of the medieval love poetry, which is actually kind of actually very devotional and brings you into this state of sort of almost sort of super like sort of supernatural romantic and de- devotional ecstasy. So what does that literature tell us about the people of the time and and the way they communicated themselves to the world? I mean, I am no longer studying this, but my personal view on it is that you have to remember that people lived at least a third of their lives in pitch darkness because, you know, all lighting was non-electric. It was either beeswax or tallow candles. So in the dark, you, you know, the imagination runs rampant and then you also have this very intense, you know, religiosity. So the world is not as we see it now, sort of through the prism of of science. It's very much the purview of spirituality. And I think that combined with a lot of suffering and what would now seem to us easily avoidable death and darkness kind of creates both the these emotional extremes and also like a real like longing for beauty and joy. Mm. And of course, this is what you do so beautifully in this book is that you, you bring all those feelings, but you've also got all these, these modern things and the modern sensibilities. But as I say, we'll come back to that because I just want to touch a little bit on your time at Birkbeck because you actually studied writing. Do you think that that was necessary in order to, to write I think it was fantastic on several grounds. I mean, firstly, I needed to kick up the pants to finish the collection, and that that was very necessary. And also, my tutors and course conveners, who were Toby Lett and Julia Bell, were really fantastic on both the technical aspects of writing. We had this sort of bravura lecture from Toby on managing perspective, you know, who is looking at what and when and how important that is to have control of that. That has always stayed with me. And then Julia was my tutor and kept saying to me like, okay, I know you think you're very clever and you've hidden all these Easter eggs, but you're actually going to need to direct the reader to them a little bit because I, you know, they will want to enjoy them as well. Mm. And kind of bringing up the more submerged aspects of the writing, I think was really valuable. And I needed someone to tell that to me directly. Right. Onto this collection. It's called parallel hells. How would you describe it in your own words? Because I mean, I I was coming up with words like it's erotic, there's a bit of magical realism, it's fantasy, it's science fiction. I was going to say feminism, but trans, but all of these different kind of, and I would like you to try and hone that into something that actually makes sense. I think if I'm trying to sum it up, my first instinct is to go for very, very queer. I think queerness is inextricable from the writing, even in the stories which aren't necessarily about queer people, like Pretty Rooms, which is actually about furniture. Secondly, I think I have a real attraction to the grotesque and the extreme, and that is very much a prevailing theme. And also, almost all of the stories are kind of about either control or autonomy and the interplay of those. Mm. I wanted to start with one story that, that really, really struck me. And this is Hags, because it's set in the London party scene, but the protagonist is not human. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
So Hags follows Aster as, for context, Aster is a demon. They are a kind of succubus, incubus-type creature that over the centuries has refined their taste to the point where they can only really subsist on feeding off human shame. And throughout history, they've always found places where they can kind of remove just enough shame from the people that they're feeding from without sort of totally mentally breaking them. And yeah, they also want companionship. So typically these have been kind of queer communities. And they're not exactly a parasite. It's almost a sort of symbiotic relationship. But there is still that kind of ethical question hanging over it that people don't quite know what Aster is doing. And I thought that was an interesting conundrum, you know, that they want to have this emotional intimacy, they want to tell people what they're doing, but they also know that as a kind of demon parasite that that is not going to be received very well most of the time. I mean, what what really struck me about this was that feeding off people's shame, as you say, it's important to leave just enough. Why do we need shame? I think that if we let all of our desires run rampant all of the time, then the world would look quite different, probably much more violent, much less concerned with kind of more communal efforts. And so I think it it, it is necessary, but we're not always shamed for the right things. Mm, That's so interesting. Another really interesting aspect about this story was the fact that that this creature lives so much longer than, I mean, lives eternally. And so, of course, there are, you lose your friends constantly. Yes, like, I think that's the thing that's always fascinated me about the idea of of kind of eternal life, because initially it seems very appealing. Oh, you know, I don't have to sicken and get old and die. I get to have all of these experiences that, you know, you might, as particularly as a reader, because you have that window onto time, might really long for. And in some ways I wrote the story as a sort of self-consolation for my own mortality. You know, eventually you will have so many memories that as with Aster, you're going to have to find a way of discharging them. They cannot actually contain all of the lives that they've lived, which is why they have these sort of pockets to store them. I love that, the memory caches. Oh, I've left this language in that cache. I can't deal with it at the moment. I just love that idea of all these little bits left all over the place. It was a wonderful, wonderful story, I thought. There's a story in which there is a vampire. In fact, it's the very first story in the book. And one doesn't realise this person is a vampire, really, until you're quite some way in. And I just love the way that you're writing this, not in a traditional kind of horror story way. This is not vampire lit like we've read it from Dan Rice or whoever. It's completely different. I mean, I don't think I could have written it without all this sort of like wonderful body of vampire lore, but I think I wanted to explore the very real awkwardness of telling people, you know, my girlfriend is a vampire. <laughs> and the fact that the narrator's just like, okay, well, you're probably a lunatic, but I'm on holiday, so I'm going to humour you. Uh, And she's horrible to her father on the holiday. Yeah, she's absolutely terrible. I mean, I... The first time I read from this aloud, I think I actually had to go and talk to my father afterwards and be like, this is not how I view you. I'm aware that this character is a horrible person. (laughs) There was one story in which an ancient book is found and within it a, a relic. And the relic is a dried up hand. 
Tell us more about this story because I found this wonderful. I actually terrified myself writing this story because I'm you know, very, very afraid of dried up things. I'm often, particularly during my medieval studies, was often coming into contact with them. For instance, like all of the bog bodies that are found in, I think, Denmark are actually revealed quite a lot about kind of like medieval people's beliefs or kind of Iron Age things. So often in research, I would then be like, open a book and then be like, very abruptly close it again. Like, oh, I cannot, I cannot look at that. And this idea of the hand of glory is something from English folklore. And it's this hand that is from the left hand of a hanged criminal, usually for murder. And you're if you're a thief, it's supposed to help you either gain the power of invisibility or unlock doors and there are some bits of Oxford that feel slightly frozen in time and I was having all of these sort of literary encounters with real really unpleasant items and those two ideas sort of fused together in my brain. And of course this hand then attacks in a very modern way an academic rival uh, which I just love the, the melding of the two and it sort of also reminded me a little bit of um, Thing from the Adams Family. <laughs> I love Thing. That's that is absolutely in there. Plus that W. W. Jacob story about the monkey's paw. Yes, the monkey's paw. Remember that? That was so scary. Oh yeah, it creeps me out to this day. There's one story that you do where the narrative splits, and so you have two separate sort of columns going down the page, but they're basically describing the same situation. Tell us more about that. Yes, I really wrestled with that one because it's one of the most experimental stories in the collection and I was slightly uncertain about the legitimacy of including it with other more kind of traditionally told ones, but it just could not be restructured in any other way. And the idea is that in this strange, strange house in the middle of Westminster, the house actually starts to gain control over this group of very kind of decadent 20-somethings and it starts playing with their perceptions. And because it has all of these sort of back-to-back -back corridors, it can then kind of split off time a little bit in order to kind of manipulate their perception of reality. And there are two people who are both in pursuit of the same person but need different things from this person, Renee, and the house decides that it's going to have a little bit of fun with all three of them. Uh, and it really, really works. And do you find, I mean, how do people read that? Because I read all of one and then went back and read all of the other. But do people read them sort of line by line or paragraph by paragraph? You can read it either way. So my initial intention was for people to read it paragraph by paragraph or line by line, but hopefully it does work also re read as sort of two discrete stories that meet at the end again. Mm. Now, this is not the only time that an inanimate object has feelings because, of course, you write about furniture too. Tell us more. So in Pretty Rooms, the story of this family is narrated by the set of furniture that they've collected over the course of their lives. And it's sort of watching them get old and sicken and die and then have the children fight each other to sort of split up this collection. And this one was one of the first stories that I wrote. It was very inspired by the old English riddles, which are these very sort of cheeky, brilliant medieval poems, often with a kind of real edge of nastiness, which are often sort of spoken by things like a belt buckle or an inkhorn or a drinking cup. But often they're also suggesting like, you know, that they might be genitalia or a person. And there's this sort of almost a sense of magic that the items 
could shift, but they're shifting in your mind's eye. And I really liked these inanimate things were kind of very imbued with life, particularly the life of the people who were using them. And I think that really fed into this. Mm. Tell me about the process of bringing this together. You said it was seven years. Yes, and there is almost an entire shadow book of more realist stories, which in the end I decided not to use because... I thought it was most powerful to have them all linked by kind of distortions in reality. And I regret it a little bit because some of the recurring characters show up in those other stories. But I think that the final version is sort of most faithful to the kind of bombastic, gothic, like, grotesquerie that I was really going for. And I think that having those moments of kind of, like, horror or supernatural incursion really helped to create that. Do you scare yourself? (laughs) At times, I'm writing my first novel at the moment and sometimes I have to sort of get so deep into this mentality of believing in ghosts that I do sometimes worry a little bit. And do you believe in ghosts? I would say that I was agnostic on it. I mean, I don't think that if I ever encountered one... It would totally shake my worldview, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm not going around being like, I wonder if there are ghosts in this building. Yeah. I read a really interesting uh, essay that you wrote that isn't, in fact, in this book, but it's about how literature portrays female friendship and the difference between platonic and sexual friendship. And I wondered if you'd just rehearse those arguments for us. Yes. So... I wrote that kind of midway through the construction of this and I think I was getting very frustrated with some of the kind of underlying homoeroticism that was being portrayed and then deployed in contemporary novels without really being named. And I think that the naming of our desires is one of the most powerful things that we can do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all desires should and can be realised, but I think that there is a real importance to verbalising what it is that you want. And I think that is also a thread that runs throughout Parallel Hells. I mean, in Stay A While, which is about a bargain with the devil, the devil makes Livia say three times, you know, yes, I actually want this. Mm-hmm. And and you took issue, really, with, with some novelists who, who describe female friendship as a platonic thing, when clearly there is an element of desire there. But the book, you call it what, The Queer Tease? Yes. And I think I'm coming at it, really, as someone who very much values my friendships and if there is an erotic component to them I think we should be clear about that yeah what is the queer tease I think it's a very kind of eroticized gaze that the female protagonist will have or indeed you know any protagonist will have for people of the sort of same or kind of like queer compatible genders and we'll start to kind of get a bit of a frisson, we'll start to wonder as if we were in a very different genre of novel, if there could be something between them and then towards the end this will be dispelled with oh well we, you know, I don't know what you mean reading into that or you know, we never acted on that and conveniently like I now have a heterosexual partner and that is not to 
undermine the very probable bisexuality of these characters. I would just wish this it was either more on the surface or more acknowledged. Mm, so interesting. Now, we were talking earlier about your mother, who is this wonderful writer who I admire hugely for, for, for her work and, and as a person. But I know that she has been very vocal about trans rights on social media. And I wonder if, if her views chime with yours and if they don't, how you navigate that. I mean, they absolutely do not chime with mine. And... I mean, we talk about this in private and are in quite strong disagreement about it. You know, I love her very much and I respect her as a writer and I'm not going to go too far into it here if that's all right. But we are very much on like opposite sides of of this issue and I would dearly love it if I could persuade her over to mine, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Mm. I wonder why this is such a divisive issue and why it's become so toxic, though. I mean, I think my two cents on it is it's not wholly generational, but there may be some generational aspect to it that quite a few of the women of my mother's age have had very considerable struggles as women, have been very marginalised, have been made to feel like less than for their achievements and that trans rights in some way have been packaged to them as denigrating those achievements and taking away from their status as women. And I I can understand the emotional import of that, but my position on it is that actually it's a very collective struggle. And I mean, even with things like the supply of HRT in the UK, that is a problem that unites like both cis women who require HRT and also trans women. And we like they would be more powerful if they were fighting together to kind of like have some answers from the government about why this supply chain keeps breaking down. But sadly, those two groups are being pitched against one another. Mm. Do you think it's, it's stirred up by a small minority of people? I mean, I think it's sort of unfortunately required its own momentum now. But yes, initially it does. And I am a little bit suspicious of particularly kind of conservative think tanks that find this a very useful stalking horse because some of their other projects are kind of less publicly palatable. Mm. Let's talk about other projects. Tell us about your new book. So my new book is called The Decadence. It follows an extremely (laughs) obnoxious group of millennials during five days in May 2020 and the protagonist is persuaded to open this big creepy house in the country that she has been willed in a trust and is not allowed to sell to these friends to have this sort of break from lockdown and they kind of not without some trepidation travel down to Holt House but are so busy kind of arguing with each other and fighting with each other and cheating on each other that they don't notice that they are in very real danger from what lurks within the house. It sounds absolutely fascinating. So it's going to be another one that's going to scare the pants off us. I do hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Leanne, that was absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for coming in to to speak to us. And I believe you're, you're, are you going to be doing some events around this book? 
But I think I will be doing another episode of the Ghost Story Book Club and appearing at the Corfu Writers' Festival in September. Fantastic. And just to, to, to leave listeners with a quote from the front from Christy Logan, she says, Trust me, you want to read this. It's the queer horror book of your dreams. Thanks very much to Leon Craig. The book is Parallel Hells. It's published by Spectre and it's out now. And you've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull and studio manager Steph Chungu. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or your preferred podcast platform. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.